you have heard of the Manning Cast, well, I would like to welcome you to the Gallo Cast. The Gallo Cast is two of the top brothers in compliance, Nick and Gio Gallo, talking compliance. In this podcast series, we bring them together for a free-form exploration of compliance topics. It's great insights brought to you from the co-CEOs of Ethico. Fun, witty, insightful, with a dash of the two brothers throughout. I know you'll enjoy the Gallo Cast. The Gallo Cast is a production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back in with the brothers Gallo, Nick and Gio, for another episode of the Gallo Cast. Gents, welcome back. Glad to be here, Tom. This is the highlight of our month. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we had some insane stories that are getting insane, more insane literally by the hour. And we're going to start with the most insane, which is FTX. When I sent you notes for this episode, my notes reflected, oh, how many institutions don't have financial statements? As insane as that is, or financial institutions, I should say, it's much more insane than that. So I don't know where you want to start, whether it's with the controls, whether it's with SBF, whether it's with no financial statements, whether it's commingling money, whether it's conflict of interest, or whether it's just bad management, as Sam told us yesterday when he spoke at the DealBook Conference Summit. Where do you want to start? Yeah, he did have a bad month. He was right about that. You think the guy could have shown up in something more than a t-shirt though, right? Here's in the where I'd start. Give him a break. Is, here's where I'd start is SoftBank was an investor. So maybe that's your only, if SoftBank is in, don't, don't be in it. They're like famously, they're like, it seems like everything that goes, every sinking ship they're like heavily invested in. That was a little funny for me to see SoftBank so heavily exposed in this deal. All right. Yeah, and well, for me, how- I would, you've heard me and Nick say before that compliance is culture. And the corollary to that is culture is people. And if you look at the people involved, the guy's girlfriend was the CFO, not sure how many investors knew that was his girlfriend. They were doing some pretty lewd things in their, uh, quote unquote, office in the Bahamas, not just the two of them, but the whole company and the the people on the board, there was, it, it was all a lot of like nepotism, very insular. And that's one of the first places you look when you're trying to do just basic conflicts of interest. Are you dealing with someone who is your family or unreasonably close to you? And if so, you should disclose it and we should, we should all know about it. We should make sure that we're clear with it. There was a lot of that. And then you can go to the structure after that of their, their trading firm, Alameda, was just using all consumer deposits as their own Collateral. their own betting piggy bank. And then you, you can, we're probably not going to do it justice, but you can get into the depth of the code and what it meant to custody your crypto assets at FTX. They had a backdoor to just take all the money and do whatever they wanted with it. I think that in some ways, this is just a darling, perfect case study about why regulation matters and why it helps. On some other ends, I don't feel that bad for some of these multi-billion dollar funds that didn't do their diligence. They're making wild, this kind of wild west, and they're making big bets, and they were up a thousand percent before this all fell apart. In some ways, it's endemic to making those types of investments as you move quickly and you got to write a billion dollar check. But it's just, it seems if there was a bingo card for corporate fraud, they wouldn't have just the diagonal. They'd have eight different ways to make bingo on the card. You're telling me that's a good guy? 
You look in the guy's eyes. I'm not going to say I called it on Theranos and I'm not going to say I called it on this, although I called it on this. Anytime this guy, anytime there's like a savior of crypto or a savior of blood testing or whatever it is, you just got to look a little bit. I mean, it really is absolutely wild. And I'm not trying to make light of it because like people lost like a lot of money. There was a lot of oh, yeah. people like protesting outside of the deal book conference yesterday about how much money they lost and how they got defrauded. And then he's in there in a t-shirt, looks like he hasn't taken a shower in a couple of days. And he's saying, intend to defraud anybody. I don't know. Hard to believe. Hard to, hard to believe. Okay. Believe it is my point. I don't believe it. Okay. I'm not sure which is the most insane fact on this case, but one of the most insane ones for me is the following. From October 2021 to October, actually February 2022, FTX garnered about a billion and a half dollars in new investment. And these were large institutional investors, one pension fund from a Canadian province, large hedge funds. These were eight and sometimes nine figure investments. These, it's just beyond belief to me for these, what I believe in my heart are sophisticated investors to have not done the most basic due diligence. Is this just a FOMO? We got to get in on this now. Is it the new thing? Surely they couldn't have been conned by SBF. We all saw him yesterday and that's apparently his persona. So even if he was a little chastised yesterday, but what are we to make of these large institutional investors? We perceive to be some of the best in the world on at least assessing risk not doing it at all. I'll tell you, the thing I was most surprised about when I was in private equity was I thought we're going to be just taking in ones and zeros and we're going to be running these models and that's going to spit out an answer and that logic, it's all going to be logic forward. And I realized pretty quickly that it's really the other way. It's emotion forward and it's backfilled with logic. And the way we make decisions in investments, and granted, there's varying degrees of discipline, how disciplined an, an investor is. I mean, I'm painting with a broad brushstroke, but I'm just saying human beings in general make decisions on an emotional basis and they backfill it with logic. That does not happen in these like highly institutional investments. And what I've seen from different people who got burned by this, and this is consistent across like every investment, the model said this, or there's some sort of like logical linchpin that allows them to have made that investment. And I think, you know, one, one rationalization that I've heard from this, which again, allows you to drop your guard and really follow your heart, which unfortunately drives a ton of investing investment decisions is that, listen, crypto is a big thing. We don't want to take crypto exposure. And so what we can do is we can invest in a platform where all this crypto activity and transaction and so forth is going. So it's a way to get in on the crypto thing without like really being in the crypto thing. Well, you can't, right? You can't You can't not have that exposure. I guess if all else equal, if this thing was really what it was supposed to be, perhaps you could say that you're not having that exposure. But for something that, anything that trades crypto, if crypto crashes, will be affected by it. You are exposed, again, on a secondary basis. But I think that's what it is at the end of the day. You know, some of these numbers that we're seeing are big numbers. They're definitely big numbers to me. But again, for someone to say, this is 1% of my portfolio, it's not that big of a bet for us. That allows them to have a, like a relatively lower, a lower, to have a lower, it allows them to lower their guard. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think part of the thing here, Tom, is that the emperor has no clothes. Okay. Like 
when I was working in our family business and thought about going to college and then I'd work at a big company and I'd see that all of these big com public companies, they got it all dialed in. They got really tight processes. Right. They get audited. So they must not be playing any games with their numbers. And then Nick and I came up in the Enron days and that was a huge thing. How could this, they were all accountants there. How could they go so far afield? And really at the end of the day, I think what I'd like a lot of people in the compliance and ethics space to understand is that most of these people that you see on Forbes, quoted in Forbes, on the stage at the DealBook conference, they're not demigods. They don't have right. a bunch of amazing skills that no one else could acquire. They played the game well, they have some connections, they made some bets. There's a bunch of survivorship bias in all of this stuff. And at the end of the day, you know, those super sophisticated financial investing funds that obviously know everything that they're doing is just a bunch of people trying to keep their job and make some more money for themselves. And they don't necessarily have the market cornered on risk analysis or anything like that. They just do something and maybe it's FOMO or maybe it's the thing that Nick said is that, Hey, we're buying picks and shovels. We're not actually mining for gold here. Yeah, but at point. the end of the day, like we are, we're herd animals. And when a bunch of people are aping into something and, all, hey, you're going to miss out on this if you don't invest. Look, they just raised another billion dollars. You're going to miss the chance for the 100x and you're only going to be able to get a 10x. People start looking at that and say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to do this. I think a lot of it comes down to uh, something that Tale Nassim Taleb talks about of skin in the game. Most of these people who invested in this fund, a pension fund, the guy running SoftBank or whatever, it's not their billion dollars. They didn't make all that money by the sweat of their brow. Someone else says, hey, can you get some yield for me? I don't want to make 5%. I want to make 25%. Go do it. And then there are all these incentives at play on a personal level, at a fun level and stuff like that, that leads people to make these types of decisions. You know, what I'd say is this is a huge upvote for the importance and the relevance of the things that we do in compliance and ethics. The way that we manage risk is better than the way that the average private equity fund investor manages risk and people need us. And this is just another example of how if some of those people had on their investment committee, someone who had lived through a bunch of risk management and seen tail risk come and eat the whole bell curve, yep. they, we've they probably would have said, hey, you know what? Maybe we should at least get some financials or maybe instead of just doing it because your buddy did it and he must have done, this is the Theranos story, right? Oh, Kissinger's on the board. Oh, I'm sure that I'm, I'm sure SV Capital did some work on it. Oh, Walgreens did it. And the narcissists that end up heading these things, they know exactly how to play off of those emotions and those human tendencies. And they take advantage of it with no consideration for the morals or how it's going to hurt people. And that's why compliance and ethics is absolutely essential. It always has been. And people are waking up more and more to how important it is. All right, let's move on to directly into Theranos then, because we've had Elizabeth Holmes sentenced. And I don't want to focus on the length of her sentence and ask you about that. But what I wanted to ask you is, did her trial and now her sentence really end an era in tech that it was completely unrestricted investment? And or does FTX show us we're never going to end that era. Yeah, it didn't end with Enron. It didn't end with Theranos. It's not going to end with FTX. There might be a period of two to five months where people are asking harder questions about the next crypto exchange that they invest in, whichever ones are left at this point. But it's, I don't see that it's going to end. 
There's always going to be the FOMO. There's always going to be the, I can invest this $500 million from this pension fund. And if it goes well, I make another $20 million for myself. And if it doesn't, they'll figure it out. They gave me the money and they get, I get to decide what to do with it. It's a function of the system that we're in. And the more and more the decisions get removed from the risk of who actually bears the risk of the pain, the more there's going to be a chance for maybe nefarious people, but also people who are just dumb or just don't do it right or just are have too much hubris and think, eh, you know what, I'll lie about it now, but it'll probably be good in a couple of weeks and we'll probably figure it out. As long as there's opportunity for people to do that, it's going to happen. I don't see it. I don't see it going away in the next century. It's interesting to, so I think a strong force in a lot of this that we lose sight of is the role that the Fed plays in all of this. Fed blows a lot of bubbles and a lot of bubbles have been driven by an expansive Fed policy. And I think after periods of extremely low interest rates or effectively like cheap money and when they turn off the spigot and we saw that we've seen it, you see it multiple times over history and we're starting to see that a little bit now. That's when you're moving from this sort of like old world growth at any cost to kind of an efficiency first where people are battening down the hatches a little bit and they're thinking a little bit, they're thinking a little bit more about where they put their dollars and what it can all boil down to is like yield chasing. Like, where are my dollars going to earn yield? If yields set by the Fed are extremely low, you're going to chase yield elsewhere. Debt is cheap. You can afford to take on more risk because the effective floor of risk is, is substantially lower as that starts to rise. Now I have new options to put money elsewhere that can earn a higher return naturally, and I don't have to chase that yield in relatively more risky investments. And that cascades across all kinds of investment categories, right? So as the Fed, look, they're a little hawkish now, or a little hawkish, they're pretty hawkish now, but as they get more dovish and as they get more comfortable with the rate of inflation, if they're able to, in their mind, cur curtail that, then you're going to see them loosen up and that's going to kick off another cycle, right? Until, so I think that's a really big driver of this. And if you look at like Fed balance sheet expansion relative to Theranos valuation, there, there's like a high correlation between those things. But well, we've been in an expansion market literally since the 08 financial downturn. And it's mm -hmm. the longest, I don't want to say expansion, but I certainly would say the lowest quantitative easing, I think is the buzzword. 100%. Yeah, that's... 08 to 22. So we had 14 years of almost little to no interest rates. And a lot of us benefited. I got a couple of houses through that process, yeah. just personally. And now we, we have had tightening over the past couple of years. But even now, the Fed may be getting indicate they're going to ease off. And even yesterday, the market reacted to that. Is Are those sorts of swings really what we should expect? Yeah, I think it's part of the system. I think that when the U.S. went off the gold standard and there was no like basis for what is money worth, it's just worth whatever the Fed wants to push it to be worth based on their interest rate decisions, then that stuff can swing outside the uh, kind of normal range of what's valuable or what's going to come out of the cash flow statement. It's it's part of the system. And I, I think you're not going to get a lot of Bernanke types saying this explicitly, but I think that they broadly say, hey, you know what? Yeah, this is maybe makes things swing a little bit more and we're learning how to rein it in with potentially negative interest rates and stuff like that. But I think they would also say, hey, you know what? All those people that made a bunch of money on, yeah, a bunch of people went bankrupt and their lives are ruined this year. But also look at how great we did building a bunch of GDP over the past decade. And they'd say, you know what? On net, in a Machiavellian sense, that's worth it. And we're doing a good job with it. It's part of the design. No one's surprised by this stuff as much as we're caught off guard and we don't know the timing and stuff. No one's surprised that a bubble is happening. People have been talking about it for 10 years. Good point.
I have a friend from law school who from 1980 to 1983 schooled me in exactly what you said about the gold standard. I might have to hook you guys up. Oh he yeah. Still rants and raves about that. <laughs> he was right then and he's right now. Yeah. Uh, let's turn to some compliance issues because we had a major announcement back in September, which is a Monaco memo that had been communicated to us starting in October, 2021 by speeches, but now we have it formalized. And there's some things that I really wanted to get your thoughts on. The first one is compliance programs incentives. And here's why this surprised me. Compliance program incentives have always been a part of a best practice compliance program. In 2007, part of my year in discretionary bonus was 20% based upon compliance and ethics. And people are now saying, oh, gee, how do we do this? Uh, we've always had those questions and we've always had those answers. This is where I think compliance needs to go down and talk to HR or come up with something. You guys, I know, think about incentives and incentivizing employees a lot. How do you guys think about compliance incentives? I just think a little bit of a, a fresh approach to it could be interesting. I don't know. I just think incentives drive all behaviors. I think we talked about this on the last episode a little bit. If we can if we can get like key results and build backwards into the types of behaviors we want those to generate and then attribute those or put those responsibilities on managers, for example, we're going to start to drive those better behaviors. For example, let's, what about if retaliation was part of somebody's bonus? What about if the number of reports that came out of a particular division, speak up reports came were a, a partially attributed to somebody's bonus? I can guarantee you that manager or that leader of the division in question would be pushing those kinds of things more. And the credibility would be coming on a more organic, closer to the front lines uh, ba basis from a messaging perspective than it would from the poster on the wall or from the CEO's annual compliance uh, tone from the top, uh, check the box kind of message. So I think that you know, what measures, whatever is measured gets managed and whatever gets incentivized drives those associated behaviors. Gio, I heard, yeah, I think rather, too big. Oh, go ahead. No, I just heard ahead, and saw you give a lot of short presentations when you guys first took over compliance line, where you talked to employees about incentives, you talked about motivational topics, and you talked about uh, how to engage employees. And it always struck me that you guys were thinking about this, not just at the end of the year, but you were thinking about these things literally on a day-to-day -day basis, how to incentivize employees, how to use compensation to do it. So I was really interested in your thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I think, I think it's a big part of how to get the right behaviors to something Nick was saying earlier, like incentives are largely a logic-based thing. There are some other things that work into it. You can be incentivized by recognition and there's subjective social things that go into that and things like that. But broadly, I think, if you're looking at incentives, two big things that I want to, that I try to look at is it going to push someone into the right action and also do they have control over that thing? And I think that when looking at this concept of incentives for compliance, I think a big hole in that is if you're trying to give compliance officers incentives around, if that incentive is just on the CCO, it's probably in the wrong place because the CCO is already very incented and very aligned and working very hard to improve the compliance program. And they're probably running up from, into blockers from the tone at the top and the amount of budget that they have and things like that. I think externalizing those incentives to have a frontline manager, you know, you should push this and you should get your teams to, to complete their COI forms and do their training and stuff like that. And that's part of it. I think that can institutionalize a lot of these behaviors that 
compliance and ethics professionals have been pushing for a long time and they say, yeah, sure, that's good. Go try to get them to do it. If you can get that implemented by the CFO or the HR office or whoever is allocating money and then allocating a framework to drive incentives, I think we want to get the CEO and the board and the frontline managers and people in other divisions to take the compliance initiatives more seriously. And I mean, we none of us should be surprised that if the sales and marketing team is only compensated on the dollars that they close and not the quality of the revenue or whether they sign honest contracts or whether they're engaging in light bribery, then they're just going to be focused on that. And if you can say, hey, you know what? And you need to do this the right way. And you need to make sure that it gets done in alignment with what our ethics team does. I think that can go a long way. But I think that the like the default kind of view from the Monaco memo might centralize this incentive a little bit too much on compliance or just broadly at the board level. And I think it needs to be really integrated throughout the organization for it to have life. But also I'm encouraged by the fact that the pressure for this, the pressure to tie economic value to ethics outcomes is happening in a bunch of other places. It's happening right. in ESG and your equity value because more people want to invest in your equity. It's happening in ESG for your debt and people are getting more favorable debt terms if they can show a path of improvement for their ESG metrics and things like that. So I think broadly, those types of things, if we can get some of those incentives and that money that's driven investment in IT and investment in marketing and sales growth and investment in innovation, those things are at play everywhere else, right? Did you launch a new market or are are, is your, are your marketing spend dollars efficient or whatever it is? We should have that same view just as like a fundamental principle. There should be that same conversion of compliance effort and ethics behavior into dollars because that's something that boils down to something that everyone can relate to. Jill, let me pick up on something you said. It was either the quality of the transaction or the quality of the customer. Because one of my father's favorite phrases was is the color of their money green. If the colors of their money is green, I'm going to do business with them. And I think mm -hmm. we've really evolved past that. And you articulated several different standards. Certainly we want to have a customer or a client that's credit worthy, but it's much beyond that. It is what are their values? What are business are they in? Are they engaging in supply chain, human trafficking? Are they doing business in countries that are on sanctions or other banned lists? And how does how do we take that information, which is priority set by different parts of the company other than sales, communicate that to sales, and then give sales the power to affect that quality of customer, quality of transaction, so that they can be compensated that, at least on a discretionary bonus basis? Yeah, I think it's a great point, Tom. And I certainly hope that we're evolving past that money is green thing. That's some of the frauds that we've talked about earlier in the show today, those people's money was green, right? The potential for them, their pr the promise for them to deliver green dollars in return seemed green, but you got to check these other things because it's a more complex equation than just the dollars that come out of it. I think traditionally in the who is sales selling to realm, the closest thing has maybe been a, hey, we have a standard, we need to make sure that they have a discrimination policy or just include in the RFP whether they have this policy in place. But if we can move some of the vendor management things into customer acquisition things and say, hey, you know what? If you sign up a new customer that 
lives our values, that has a good compliance program in place, that has these policies and can show that they that they implement them, then we're going to somehow give more credit to it. Maybe we'll authorize a bigger discount because on balance, we'd rather have them than someone else who plays fast and loose and does a bunch of bribes and they go out of business or they expose risk to us. I think traditionally, the kind of compliance 1.0 legal and regulatory only keep the boss out of jail mentality is, well, we'll just, we'll just shut some things down if it's obvious that they're bad. Obviously, there are a bunch of things that are bad that are not so binary. And if we can add that lens into it and say, hey, you know what, if we can prove this and if we can show this or we can we can be more aggressive with this client, this potential customer that lives our values, then that's going to end up, you know, impacting the thousands of decisions that run through that. And part of that is to bring up that it may not just be you give someone a better bonus for signing up ethical clients, but it may be that you make business easier for them. We do it in cybersecurity, right? If someone has a SOC 2 audit, then we say, hey, you know what? We're going to green light this thing and we don't have yep. to go through all of this stuff. So if there was that sort of thing where we say, hey, you ask these 20 questions and we're going to give them a compliance score. And if they pass this, then compliance is going to green light this. And if not, we're going to have to do a deeper audit or something like that. That type of thing is not necessarily just giving them a bonus, but it shows up in their comp because it's easier to sign it up and it's easier to close the business and they can be a little bit looser with pricing discounts or something like that. And I think that part of what I think around the ethics community we're doing is we're starting to understand that when we partner with other divisions and show up, not just with a billy club of say, I'm going to find something wrong and I'm going to hit it with this, but say, hey, you know what? I think that if you and we work together, we're going to be able to find a better path forward to build value for the whole organization. And I'm not just, I can put away and we can collaborate together. That's a new muscle for a lot of us. It's not just quoting a regulation or restricting them via a policy. But if we're looking at, hey, how can I enable you? How can I make you more successful by applying my lens of risk management and compliance and ethics? That's a great place to be. And you know what? It's a much more collaborative and probably enjoyable relationship. Let me turn to the part of the Monaco memo about the DOJ assessing culture. Once again, this was communicated to to us over a year ago, and it seemed to bring a lot of gnashing of teeth in the compliance community. And it was along lines of, oh my gosh, how do we assess culture? How do we put a culture improvement strategy in place? How do we monitor it? And then how do we improve it? Which to me sounds like what compliance officers do every day. So I didn't quite understand that. But are you guys getting questions from clients around this? Or are you counseling clients on how, if if a regulator comes knocking, how can you, in an auditable way, demonstrate your culture? Yes. It's like the gnashing of teeth is like present. It's ever present. And I don't really get, I'm like you, Tom, I don't get it. I, I mean, my, what I would say is how do you want to show it? I don't know. Prove it some way. I mean, there, it's a, it seems like it's a relatively low bar for how you can prove it. So you can say, we saw an uptick in these, we did a campaign and we saw a bunch of extra speak up. That's the easiest way to me to get some like data points for it. You also can do a culture assessment at one point in time, do an initiative that should be risk-based or have some sort of logic behind it, and then do another culture assessment. We have an ongoing process in our organization. Granted, we're, we're not a hundred thousand person organization, but it's always been a focus for us. We are a culture forward company. We think culture is the only sustainable competitive advantage. And that is an ongoing process for us to just like a manufacturing company is going to be maintaining quality in their production process. We're main, we're trying to maintain quality in our people process, which is our culture. So it's just not that tough. If we send the same survey around every single year. We come up with some kind of a score or we happen to do it quarterly. We can start to get a pulse with that, right? We can also 
measure qualitative things. Not everything needs to be super quantitative. So you can get inputs and you can, I think what they're trying to get at is that a culture of compliance and an ethical culture is going to drive the outcomes that are ultimately going to hopefully be headwinds for you getting in trouble with the DOJ, right? So if you can just show, it's like an audit, it's like anything else. If you can show some cohesive, coherent, logical activities that are meant to address this thing, you're going to get into a better spot should something pop off because everybody understands that this is a complex system and we're dealing with human beings and so forth. I just, we always take this sort of consultants approach. Most consultants can get 80% of the answer on the back of a napkin. So what is that thing? You don't need some massive financial model to figure out how how your culture is doing. You can do a roundtable, you can do surveys, you can do a Google form that's sent around periodically to see how things are moving. And then you need to do something to address those things. And it's pretty easy, I think, let me back up a little bit. It's pretty easy to get overwhelmed. Man, I gotta climb this whole mountain. I don't even know the way up it. The way up it is start taking some steps. And you take some steps and you figure it out as you go and you get feedback. Okay, this is too, this mountain pass is too steep. I need to go around the other side. All those things are available to us or that kind of a mentality is, avail- is available to us in any of these sort of sticky, gray, amorphous problems that we're trying to solve. And usually, you know, this Pareto principle is at play, the 80-20 rule, where 20% of the problem or 80% of the bad stuff is coming from 20% of the inputs. Get some way to start attacking those things and just iterate through it over and over again. I just think we overcomplicate it. Like the amorphousness of it can be intimidating, but I'm just saying you just got to jump in and start doing something and you start to figure out the shape of the thing. So let me turn Yeah, I would just say you. that- Go oh, ahead, Gio. Sorry, go ahead, Todd. I'll be quick. I, I think that it's natural for people in our industry due to what's been required of us due to what we've learned throughout our careers and some just due to the average personality or the median personality in, in our industry to see that uncertainty of they didn't define it for me and to- feel like unsettled by it. But I think that part of where this is going, listen, if you want compliance and ethics to be a strategic lever for the business, you're going to have to deal with a bunch of uncertainty. It's not just implementing that program in the 85 bullets that was set out by the regulator. It's we're going to have to apply this principle. And we do plenty of that. But I think when you see this uncertainty, that's not really well defined. I think you can look at it as I don't know what to do, so I'm going to do nothing. Or you can look at it as there's a principle here and it's an opportunity and I probably have a bunch of freedom to figure it out. And I think that's some of what you ask, what clients are asking about and looking for. That's some of what the forward thinking, forward leaning people are doing. And it's not all at the executive level. Sometimes it's just a really thoughtful coordinator or manager or VP that says, Hey, you know what? I think we can probably do something to move this forward on this front. And if you're trying to get to those outcomes, you can start taking some steps right now and say, all right, we're going to measure something, or we're going to make sure that the next software that, that we adopt makes it a little easier to do this thing. And if, if it's measuring culture, just pick one to five things that you want to measure and get a baseline. And then if you're measuring that every quarter or every year, you'll be a lot smarter in three years by doing a little bit of work that you had really no idea how that process or that trip would turn out when you started. If you get to work on it in this time when there's not a lot of exacting pressure from regulators and from your board that says we have to implement this exact program, if you get started on it, then you will have created something by the time they come around and say, this always happens, Tom, they say, all right, we're really serious about this now and we're going to start studying it or we're going to start measuring it or we're going to start enforcing it or we're going to define it more. By the time that happens, if you get started now, then you're going to be in a much better place. It's just that you're going to have to build some of it on your own. You know what? That's how, that's how you become a problem solver for your CEO. 
is you say, hey, you know what? No one knows how to do this. I bet I could take, I could do a decent job at it. And you know what? Since no one else is competing for this, whatever job you do is going to be better than nothing. So jump in. It's that high agency, Geo Gallo approach to the world. I love it. Gents, I want to be cognizant of our time. We're coming up to the top of the hour. looks like we're at the end of this Gallo cast. I wanted to thank you guys and look forward to continuing this conversation. All right. Thanks for having us. Always a blast, Tom. It's always fun, Tom. I love everything that you do, and I just love that you keep doing more. You're an inspiration to all of us. No joke. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the GaloCast. I'm going to link to Nick and Geo's profiles on LinkedIn as well as to the Ethicos site. If you need hotline or other compliance products or services, I hope you'll check out Ethico, formerly known as Compliance Line. I hope you'll join uh, Nick, Geo, and myself for our next episode of the GalloCast. I hope you have had as much fun listening to this as we had recording it and bringing it to you. The GalloCast is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.